Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Hi, Caitlin. Delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You reached out a couple months ago, I don't know, maybe a month ago, and said that you've been a longtime listener. So I'm delighted that we have finally connected. Um, you know the routine, uh, but before we uh, jump into our conversation, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, I'm Caitlin Bain. I've been working in the development um, stratosphere for 10 years now. Um, Fell into it like so many of us do um, at a private uh, Catholic high school right out of college and stuck with it. Um, I think I explored so many different outlets for how I could make a difference in the world. And majority of them scared me, but oddly enough, fundraising didn't. So, <laughs> Oh, that's, that's an interesting way to put that. Uh, what were the other things that scared you? That fun- that's, I've never heard anybody put it that way. Um, what, what scared you that did, fundraising did? Law school was one. I took the LSAT and I thought, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. And then I was like, well, this is not like the TV shows. So this is not for me. Um, And then uh, social work. Um, actually enrolled in a master's uh, in social work program, went to orientation, and, you know, they do a good job of weeding the ones that are not meant to be there out. Because for me, I wear my heart on my sleeve, and it was just some of the stuff that they just prepare you for. I was like, nope, can't do it. So I found my jam, and this is it. Well, that's fascinating. Okay, so no no law school, mm-hmm. no social work, mm-hmm. but you have fallen in love with fundraising. Mm-hmm. So as we, folks, for my listeners, as we dive into whatever Caitlin's got for us today, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of interpret it through that lens. <laughs> so whatever big, bold idea that you bring to us, we'll, we'll perhaps let that add an, an additional layer <laughs> of... Um, yeah, I'll have to ponder that as you're as you're talking. Well, my degree was communication, so I like to argue. Yeah, and I like to advocate. So you combine those, and really, that's that's some secret sauce for a fundraiser. 
<laughs> do you find that you can uh, have you have you found the place? Uh, yes, I, I tend to be a very debatable, argumentative sort of stir up the pot <laughs> sort of character too. Um, but but of, oftentimes I'm doing that in I'm always doing that. Very rarely am I guilty of not trying to advance the relationship. Yes. I'm trying to put depth and meaning and purpose into the relationship. And I'm perfectly okay with the tension. Mm-hmm. Have you developed a comfort level with the tension? Uh, what, um, what some authors call the flow. You've sort of found that by putting a little bit of that tension into the conversation, you get the flow that you need oh, yeah. to advance the conversation. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. That's the only way it's enjoyable. I mean, I like a little right. fire in the conversation. I know it's not fun <laughs> otherwise. Yes, that's totally cool. That's totally cool. Well, Caitlin, I don't want to hijack the conversation before you get an opportunity to kick it off for us. So we ask our guests to bring a big idea or bold opinion about fundraising to the show. So what do you got for us today? I, um, this comes from my background. So just to set it up, having worked for private institutions and with a lot of exposure to university fundraising as well through colleagues and peers and friends, um, and now working in a more not necessarily grassroots, but closer to grassroots organization, community serving organization. I want us all to stop underselling annual operations. So I know it's not sexy and it's not something that you can package and make, you know, beautiful, but it is absolutely worthy of major gifts, five and six figure gifts. Um, And so starting to change the conversation and even the way that we frame the annual operating budget to advocate for more substantial, um, meaningful gifts. Okay, so Caitlin, are you? Uh, let's let's perhaps reframe that a little bit. This, uh, maybe let me mess with your language a little bit before we dive into that. You basically saying, be uh, fundraisers need to learn how to more confidently solicit unrestricted. Yes general operating dollars in more in more significant more significant levels is that is that basically what you're saying yes i feel like there's this inherent fear that we kind of feed into ourselves and do ourselves a disservice um for asking for that and then advocating for it and i think you know universities and hospitals you know they've all got it figured out but it i don't think that happened overnight i think that they developed the culture of philanthropy that that those kinds of gifts were became the norm um, for those types of institutions, but you know you know for the community organization like the people are our program, and yeah. you know now when I talk to donors, I'm talking about not just the program and the outcomes and the statistics, but the people that are within our organization that make it all function and possible. We can't do it without them. We can't execute this. So yes, I'm asking you. Just, to make a significant gift completely unrestricted to our annual operating budget. At a more, at a, at, at more than just a trivial level at more than just something you'd give on giving Tuesday, for example. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think, I think the give I think that's what you've probably heard me sort of, uh, allude to in previous conversations is, is that I think we have for some reason, and I don't know where this came from, and I, perhaps it's our PR, PR and marketing friends that have hijacked our work, mm-hmm. but they have, they have convinced us that the easiest way to generate unrestricted revenue is to, is, is to focus on these smaller donors. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we literally try to nickel and dime our way to having significant levels of general operating or unrestricted support from the smallest you know, generally the smallest, most insignificant gifts, mm-hmm. um, not to question the significance or the meaning behind the, 
the $25 gift, but it takes a long time or like the average gift on giving Tuesdays, 116 bucks. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time to get $116 to the level where it's sufficient enough to, to get the light bills paid. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I don't know where that comes from either. Um, you know, when I walked into this agency, we had just begun a capital campaign that they had never done before. Big Brothers Big Sisters of Central Indiana was launching this Rise campaign, which we came up with that name when I started to, you yeah. know, you know, expand um, our operations. So we had capacity building as part of it, uh, but then a bigger part of it was to be in this mentoring center that would be more front-facing in the community and people would be able to find us and we'd be an active part of uh, of the community and attract more volunteers and uh, all the list goes on and on. But people jumped behind that. And you know who did? They were the donors who were already there. They were the donors who knew the mission the best. Um, but they knew the mission the best because they knew the people the best. They knew that all of the, the ingredients that needed to go into making our program possible. And those are the donors that still give uh, major gifts on an annual basis. Um, so I, I know it's not impossible because we have some of the most amazing donors in the entire world uh, giving to us right now. Okay. Is the, is the, um, is the elephant in the room <laughs> is the unspoken reality in why nonprofit organizations cannot raise significant unrestricted gifts because the system itself is designed for these arm's length relationships because you can't have, yeah. you can't, it, it, if the whole system is basically designed, if, 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 if our job descriptions basically are sort of designed to raise money in an arm's length, which is to say, we're not sitting across the lunch table from Mr. And Mrs. Smith. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not so much about whether or not it's restricted or unrestricted. It's just, we're never, so many of us have our professional identities wrapped up in raising money in other ways. Mm -hmm. And so I'm guessing you would concur with the idea that we can't we can't achieve the goal that you're pushing us towards without first getting to the lunch table. Am I right? Right, and a lot of budgets don't allow for that. You know, I don't have it in my budget to go and and have lunch with said donor, and and so like that's a mistake too. That's that's holding us back. Uh, we invest. Oh, so you, wait, wait, wait! Your your your, your budget. Has, you have a budget <laughs> for that. It's just your budget's being spent on direct mail. Right. I mean, you're spending higher margins on dollars that are a fraction of of, of you know. Um, I, I I hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. When we do our seminars, Caitlin, we when we do our seminars, we oftentimes we have these three lanes, and the first lane is all that new acquisition stuff. It's Gala's golf tournaments and Giving Tuesday. But what it also is, is it's $116 that don't get you, And it's generally, it's very project-oriented dollars, mm -hmm. right? It generally is the dollar that the donor expects to see some of some sort of an immediate, like they want it to go to work. So whether it's going to work in a very specific way or a general way, they want it like spent, they sort of implicitly want it spent tomorrow. Right. That doesn't get the bills paid. And what we talk about, and I had a guest on here recently, and you might have listened to this conversation with Tamarin, mm -hmm. but she was basically saying that when she, when her team of fundraisers got to the place where they were at that lunch table and they had to have a more complex conversation, yes. <laughs> they didn't know how to do mm -hmm. it. They, they're like deer in the headlights sort of um, yep. look on their face. Like, how the hell do I have this conversation? And in your case, how do I ask for this relatively open-ended, ambiguous sort of mm -hmm. gift 
And I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that we won't get to the damn lunch. Table. Right. That's huge. That's that's a huge piece of it. I think it's, there's like a three pronged issue here. And that's one of the pieces. The other piece is the lack of understanding of the donor. Because I have had conversations with donors who have said, you know, I, I just I don't really want to support annual operating. Like, I, I just don't want to support that. And I think that there's a lack of understanding. Like, it hit me, you know, the other day. I was like, we need almost a case for support that really walks through every level and layer of our program to help better communicate to donors. Like, when we're asking for this annual operating gift, this unrestricted gift to help us fulfill our program and power our mission every single year, this is what it does. Um I'm not sure we're articulating that well because I think we're often ashamed of asking for an unrestricted gift because it's like, well, we're, we're not very big. We're not very important. You know, I'm just, I, I know I realize I'm asking you to pay people salaries and keep the lights on and it's, and there's just kind of a shame to it. And it, I don't think that it should be there. Remind me what, what it is you guys do, Caitlin. Or, I, 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 I'm forgetting what you do. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters is one-to-one mentoring. Big Brothers Big yes. Sisters. Yes. So you've been around right, for right. Okay. ages. Um, okay. So I know Big Brothers Big Sisters. So are you saying that you can't raise an unrestricted gift that's understandably going to impact little Sammy who's in the, who shows up at the gymnasium once a week or something? No. Is, is that basically what you're saying, that it has to be... Because I, I, so I work with a lot of clients in private schools and higher education and so forth. And when, and like a program like Big Brothers and Big Sisters, when 80% of your program is basically teachers and Mm -hmm. basically teachers and students, brothers and and sisters, whatever, you know, um, it's all about people. And I don't know if the designation sort of mantra, sometimes I think we get ourselves tied up in knots unnecessarily because we sort of get um i know rice university down in houston historically has taught a program that teaches chief development officers and chief, and chief financial officers in larger institutions how to get along <laughs> because i don't think that i don't know that it's the donor who really gives a damn so much about the designation so much as being able to um allow you, the fundraiser, to accurately convey that that general operating money is absolutely going to affect little Jim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's where part of the problem is. We can't, you know, we're, we're, we need to figure out how we're articulating it. Now, when I speak of our organization, we have we have figured it out. I think we need to do a little bit more and take yeah. it to the next level. I think this year has shown us that, you know, we realize, man, our program does so much on the inside that people don't know, you know, you, you see one-to-one mentoring, they pair a big and a little, these meaningful life-changing relationships, uh, but there's so much that goes before that, that relationship even happens. And I think we could do a better job. And this is probably true of so many organizations of articulating that. Um, it's the, um, are the program people, if you don't mind me sort of unpacking your program from the way or perhaps the way you're raising money, is somebody from the program side of your um, somebody from the program side of your organization periodically a- a- accompanying on these lunch table conversations? No, and they need to be. Uh, I think that's part of what we've, okay. <laughs> we've thought about, too, you know, because, um, you know, I can talk till I'm blue in the face about how amazing. I mean, I literally work with some of the best human beings on the planet, the most yeah. intelligent, um, 
I don't know, forward thinking, innovative, incredible hearts, just amazing people that work here that make this possible um, and definitely need to be part of those conversations. Because here's what we do in our seminar. So um, you might appreciate this, Caitlin. So we have a, um, we have a, and and I'll tell you the the backstory behind it. So I was working with a client in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, chief development, only development, you know, sold director of development. I think he had an assistant, for example. So very, very small one person shop sort of operation. And the senior, the, the executive director of the organization, the two of them were not speaking the same language. The executive director didn't know what was going on, so forth and so forth. And so in our deliberate practices that we teach at Responsive, we require that 50% of the meetings that a development director goes on, they do in mm-hmm. teams. We don't care who that team member is, mm-hmm. but we want it to be a board member, a program staff, your boss, a volunteer, one of the youngsters, maybe one of the big brothers, so forth and so mm-hmm. forth. But we, but basically, the, the 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 awareness that I came to working with this particular client was is that you had this development director out in the field, and everybody was drawing these weird and strange assumptions about what this gentleman was doing. But the other thing is, is that this. See, this this executive director who actually had all the this this was probably one of the most impressive men that I had ever met. He was a retired Navy guy, <laughs> and um, I remember when we sort of put this practice in place. He came back and he told me later. He said, "Jason, I went on three meetings with my director of development. It was completely exhausting." <laughs> He had never experienced what it was like, like you and I totally get. He he had never experienced what it means to go in a single day, perhaps, on three meetings, back to back to back, and sort of ensure of that sort of qualitative, you know, there's meaningful stuff that happens at that lunch table. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's part of what, when you say that your donors are... Is part of what your donor is looking for not so much the designation written into the negotiation of what you're mm-hmm. asking them for, but they want that program director sitting alongside you telling them essentially how this money's going to get spent. Yes, absolutely. And those are that's why that's part of the plans, you know, our plans for this year and talking about, you know, I've, I've changed the conversation a little bit more openly with donors and ask them or questions about what. What is it that that you would like to learn more about with the program? This is not any rocket science that you know is, is happening, but I think the conversation is shifting with with donors. Um, I, I'm, you know, I had a pretty transparent conversation with one of my donors who, you know, wanted to, you know, maybe maybe we should package something, you know, such and such a way, and I said I, I could do that, you know, to secure your gift, but. But ultimately, I think that would take away from our program and the outcomes that we want to deliver upon. Um, and so if that's, you know, then those are the kind of conversations we need to have that are kind of honest and transparent about what the organization really needs to do the best possible work. Is that is that donor in your mind grasping grasping for control? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. What, what are they grasping for? Um, I mean, I think that that maybe it's more that they, you know, want to feel more involved. And I think that there are other ways to accomplish that then. And I think we do sometimes spin our wheels trying to put put something together, um, you know, for specific donors that, that really at the end of the day, they just want to feel a part of what we're accomplishing. Um, And there are beautiful ways we can do that. Um, Yeah. I have never said it this, I've never put it in the context of what you're talking about, but in my first book, I, I pointed out the, uh, Wasserman Wasserman did some research at Harvard, and he was talking about the inverse relationship between growth and control. And so, 
if you're in a relationship like you and I here, sort of on the front end of sort of forming a relationship, there's always going to be this tension between the degree to which we're going to grow the relationship or to which we're going to hold back and retain some measure of control in perhaps our uncertainty and fear of where this might lead to or something mm-hmm. like that. You follow what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And so I wonder if when we see our donors in some way or another sort of grasping for what perhaps underlying feels like control, what we have to do is instead of giving them that control, which ultimately is things like highly restricted designated gifts, we've got to lean into the growth like, you know, eliminating the pressure of sort of necessarily closing this gift today and perhaps getting back together in two weeks and and, and putting more investment in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of this is the urgency that's built into, again, this this gets back to getting along with the CFO down the hall, is, is, is if your revenue projections are so, you know, if you're being sent, and I'm not suggesting this is what's happening at your shop, I don't get the impression it is, but if we're sending out fundraisers with the expectation that every damn time they come back with a check, the more the likelihood you're going to get these restricted Mm -hmm. gifts because you're literally not giving time to grow the relationship based on trust, familiarity, rapport, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I will say I am thrilled with the direction that our particular agency is going. You know, we're providing more structure to our individual giving than we've ever had before, more major gifts than we've had before, more gifts at that like mid-level, $1,000 to $2,000 level. Um, Because we're just starting to spend the time with the donors and we have more of the capacity to do so, you know, our team has grown. So so there's a lot of pieces at play that help do that. And then, you know, you follow on following a capital campaign where you have this whole new, you know, community of donors, um, some of which had already been there. uh, But now you've got this deeper relationship with them. It just started to open my eyes a little bit that, you know, so much of of what we do on a regular basis, not just, you know, when we do a capital campaign or some amazing transformative project, so much of what we do every single day. And in particular in this past year of 2020, where we, we did more than, than what we were supposed to do. You know, we were delivering food to families. We were um, finding resources for families in need. We were connecting kids to, you know, technology support. I mean, our team was going above and beyond to make sure that, that every kid had what they needed in our program. Um, and those are things that are worthy of being talked about and are worthy of funding and investment. So Caitlin, I have talked to it. it, it I don't think it's a, I'm going to, I'm going to consider this somewhat providential because I have had a number of conversations just in the last 12 months, probably more so than ever in my career with, with our friends and colleagues in the big brothers, big sisters world. And I'm curious to sort of just maybe sort of, dig deeper into what this donor, this donor that's sitting at the lunch table with you, that's sort of grasping for something. What is the typical donor like at Big Brothers Big Sisters that perhaps I'm not, help me connect the dots between who this donor is and perhaps what they're um, they're looking for. Uh, I would say those who are at the major giving level that have been giving for years, that have been involved in the organization for the long haul, they are interested yeah. in I mean, and many of them will say this um, until every kid is paired with a mentor and every kid that has asked and is waiting for a mentor is paired with one. Um, I'll be invested in this mission. Um, and I think that they've been given the time to really see all of the intimate layers of what goes into the enrollment and matching process, what goes into the um, recruitment process, what goes into the match relationship specialists 
role um, and what that looks like. And I think that there's just those that fully understand the whole picture are the ones that are giving the most meaningful transformative gifts. So is it safe to assume that large majority of the people that are giving at these sort of levels have either been a big brother themselves or had a big brother or big yes, sister? Yes, or been on the board. They've either been in they've either been in one side of the relationship or or the other is 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 or or perhaps they have a for example, when I was at the Epilepsy Foundation, um, we found out, I mean, it was very easy to sort of connect the dots between the fact that the person that was generally writing the most significant gifts had some meaningful connection. Either they themselves had a seizure mm-hmm. disorder or they had a loved one that had a seizure disorder. And so therefore, you know, being able to sort of know and understand that sort of, um, I, I think, I think what, and, and, and I'm curious to hear how, how you how you all pull this out. Again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm relatively unengaged with the big Brother, big brothers big sisters world, but I have had a number of these conversations with you all. Um, how at the lunch table are you all listening to their story? I mean, is that all? Is that essentially what's playing out at the lunch table? Are we hearing mm-hmm. their story? Or are we sitting there basically telling them? No, lies? I mean, I, I know it's a good meeting when they're doing more of talking to me. Um, um, yeah, sure. But yeah, it's mostly hearing their stories, and I think that you can. I think what's become interesting as I get more into this role, I've been here, this is my three and a half years now. And so now I'm just starting to get my, get my real groove. Um, What's interesting in having these conversations, even with those who haven't necessarily been connected as a board member or a big or anything directly with this program, everybody can probably identify someone in their life that has been a mentor. Everybody can identify with wanting to, empower kids. Um, and I think that those things, once you start to dig into what of that, what of our mission and our program, the meaning behind big brothers, big sisters to defend, ignite and empower potential for kids. What of that aligns most with you? And you start to pull that out. That's when we start to make those connections. And so when, when I started talking about like making a case for support and really even as staff, do we fully understand all the layers and um, what goes on in this program? Like, do we fully understand it enough to communicate it? If if we take your budget, if we take your budget at your organization, your total budget, and divide it into the number of, of what, what do you call the kids? Are they mm-hmm. littles? Or what do we call the children? Mm-hmm. Littles? Okay. If we divide your total operating budget by the total number of which is the same thing we do almost in any other uh, organization. You know, we certainly do a lot of this in education. And that number works out to be $2,500. Is that not an unrestricted gift? If you're soliciting that, so mm-hmm. if you went out and solicited nothing but $2,500 gifts, yeah. which times the number of students you serve in a year, that becomes your major operating. That That is your operating budget. Do you, is that is that not, That's what we would be doing with any yep. of my private school clients, for example. Is that not unrestricted money in your world? It absolutely is. Mm-hmm. It is. So why doesn't that work for that particular donor? If I went to Mr. and Mrs. Smith and said, will you give us $2,500? $2,500 is what it costs to basically serve mm-hmm. little Johnny. Why doesn't Here's that Here's what's work? challenging. They're like, well, why? Why does it cost $2,500 to support? Well, you can't tell. Can you not tell can. them that? And like that comes down to all the different you know pieces of enrollment and matching and the the background checks and like and all those like tangible 
details. But then when you start to go into that, yeah. their eyes glaze over and like, well, that's boring, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> you right. know, <laughs> um, and, and, <laughs> okay, so so we're telling right. Okay, so in the church, I remember learning this when I was in the fundraising. When I was in faith based fundraising, as in particular with churches, for example, they would tell this brilliant fundraiser would tell churches that it. So once a year, you have a church that gets together for what they call the annual budgeting meeting, and the church membership has to basically approve the budget. And what this gentleman would teach these pastoral leaders and other members of the perhaps the deacon boards or whatever the hell they were, um, that they had to do what's called a narrative budget. And it was basically learning how to tell the story huh. of the budget. And it sounds like in some ways that's basically what where some yeah. of the hang-up is, is this case for support that yeah. you're getting at. Um, you know, um, and, and, and when you start talking about the light bill as it relates to little Jim, Jimmy, do they do they do they have an inclination to either glaze over or do they have an inclination to just want to pay the light bill? I think glaze over. I just think, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, and I've said that before. I was like, look, I know it's not sexy. This isn't sexy to talk about. This is just, this is, but this is, and so I think part of it too. So we talk about that, but then I say, I want to tell you, you know, for our organization, the people are our program. The program are our people. And let me tell you a little bit about our people. And so I'll go into talking about Mike, who's our match relationship specialist, who, you know, when yeah. his little on his caseload reached, you know, a, a health crisis, he was there for the family. He showed up at the mom's door. He spent an hour and a half talking to the mom of that little. What can we do to help? Um, we were able to pull resources from an emergency fund that we have for families to be able to help support that family. So, I mean, and then you start to paint the picture of, all these amazing people. Yes, I am asking you for an annual operating gift to support this right. program and make it possible. But but these are the people behind the program. So, yes, I'm asking you to keep the lights on. I'm asking you to help us keep these people on staff because they're amazing and we need them. We can't do this without them. It's the... Um are you telling the story a little Jimmy more often than you're what uh, let, we'll, uh, we'll, let's, let's, let's shift gears. Let's make this a little more gender. Uh, are you telling the story of little Sally more often than you're telling the story of big um, Veronica, the, the big sister? I think we were, we were talking more about the little and the focus has always been on the little and the need and the number of kids waiting. Cause we do have, I mean, if you told the story of the, do they, do they, and the, the donor that's the donor that's helping. This is kind of a fascinating sort of d deep deep dive, and you take this. We go in a different direction here bef before I let you go. But is is perhaps the drilling down drilling down too much into little Johnny or little Sally, mm -hmm. and that we need to sell that uh, begin to oversell them on Big Veronica or exactly. Big Bill? Exactly. Because in the school space, again, I'm relating this to the school space mm -hmm. and the education space. Uh, like, for example, when you because you started this conversation on higher education, mm -hmm. for example, one of the things we know about with higher education is that they underwrite chairs. So they underwrite the cost of the professor or, um, you know, it's the it's the teacher's salary. It's basically a teacher's the cost to have that teacher sit in that chair, or be the lead of that faculty, that department or something. Those also tend to be bigger bigger chunks of mm -hmm. cash. I understand that Sally, in your case, big Sally is not actually being, um, she's not being compensated. She's a volunteer, but, but understand, does the donor perhaps need to better understand 
what it takes to put her. Everything sounds to me like it's about putting her in mm-hmm. her role and supporting the big and empowering the big to be able to do the be yes, the best yeah. volunteer. I mean, you know, the match relationship specialist walks hand in hand with big family um, and little, you know, and and that's that's a huge piece of it. Um, and we need these volunteers. And the only way you reach these volunteers is, you know, you got to have marketing and you got to have events and communication. Uh, so, uh, I, but I do think we focus so heavily on a little, which is valid. We absolutely should. And then the need. Yeah. How many we need. Yes. Um, but we don't focus on what's already happening. Like, because what we're already doing is awesome. Yes, we have a thousand kids on our wait list, but we have 1,200 kids in our program actively. That's awesome. That's worthy of investment. Is the, um, are you familiar with cathedral yes. thinking? Yeah. So cathedral thinking, I think, is something that we have not incorporated. So for our listeners who are not, cathedral thinking is an idea of sort of pushing ourselves with goals that are sort of beyond the any one individual or group sort of ego, right? I accomplished this. Is part of this that we're selling them sort of too short term like we're too sort of in the present because ultimately if we are talking, I have to imagine you guys are talking about the fact that little Billy is going to end up graduating from the nearby university and becoming a, you know, remarkable scientist and mm-hmm. curing cancer or something. Yes. Am I yes. Right? I've even had that conversation with donors that, you know, you know, there, there are ways that you can support by funding a hospital wing or a university or a school. Um, but I'm here today to talk to you about, you know, the, the doctor that's going to walk through those, that hospital wing, um, that the teacher is going to stand in front of that classroom. I mean, this is the long-term investment. And so we've started to shift toward multi-year gifts, asking for multi-year gifts, because, you know, in order to do innovative programming and a lot of donors, that that's the big word that every donor wants to talk about is, you know, how are you being innovative? How are you being innovative? Um, in order to do things that are really innovative and transformative, we have to have, you know, solid and secure and steady uh, funding to accomplish that. So it's hard. I was also kind of painting that picture and helping them um, invest in more than just this year, but the long-term seeing that future um, ahead. Okay. Caitlin, I got to ask you, we're going to wrap up on this thought. Are you being too hard on yourself? (laughs) Cause you sound like you really got it down. You sound like you really got it figured out. And it might be has, has, has a particular conversation with a donor sort of gotten in your head that this, because these donors are always, is this you being too hard on yourself? You're always going to have to. I know I'm always hard on myself, Jason. That's just like, I I am like, I I was raised Catholic. That's what we do. We know we're (laughs) constantly, You're always trying to figure out how to yeah. save your soul. Is that what yes. it is? <laughs> trying to earn yes. God's favor. You're always trying to earn God's favor. Well, if you were a uh, if you were an evangelical or reformed evangelical like I am, you'd, you'd realize that God. You don't. You've but already gotten think, His favor. He's already on your side. I don't think I came side. to this conclusion on my own accord. Like I think I. I've figured it out how to have these conversations with donors, but I see the challenge in even some of my teammates, some of my peers working at other small nonprofits where I'm like, why are you so afraid to have this conversation? Why are you holding back? It's okay to go into detail. I know it sounds boring at first, but but it, it needs to be explained. Don't undersell the work that you're already doing. There's a great book. It's called Being Wrong, and I can't remember her name, but... I think one of the things that 
that's sort of in between the lines, implicitly in between the lines of what you just said, you're saying to you're, you know, you're either saying or not, or wanting to say to your colleagues in other shops, for example, is, and I think what major gift fundraisers who are routinely at the lunch table learn how to do is, is what this author refers to a more optimistic sort of notion mm-hmm. of being wrong. That when you're doing complex, unpredictable sort of work of the sort that you and I are talking about, but also like we had talked about with Tamron a couple of months ago, you have to be okay with the fact that part aspects of this, just because it's messy and complex, is mm-hmm. you're going to be wrong because you've got to get the wrong stuff on the table in order to sort of sort it out, get it out of the way so you can finally get yes. to what is right. Yes. And I'm not afraid. Of, like, if a donor tells me no, great. I know that sounds so weird, but it's just true. You, you. <laughs> yes. But that's that tension. That's that tension that we started mm-hmm. the conversation with. You're okay with that tension being on and the table. And nine times out of ten, they don't say no. Maybe it's not the right ask or the right time or whatever, but but nine times out of ten, they, they, that opens the door to the conversation, and I love that. I mean, and this is probably some of the hardest major gift work I've ever done working for this organization because it isn't as tangible. Like I know I could probably work for a university and have this huge portfolio and ask for you know so many you know six seven figure gifts, five six seven figure gifts, and I could have an easier time at it. But I like this because it means something to me. And I think that that comes through with the donor, um, that I, that I believe in this. And if you do believe in it, then you should have no problem selling it. Yeah. But what you just said, Caitlin, so I had a guest, uh, on here, this was several months ago. You might've heard this conversation. What you just said reminds me of this was the idea that we've got to learn how to raise money in mm-hmm. places. And so all this envy, I, 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 no shame to our friends in healthcare and in, um, in higher education, but you know, some of what, what, what we might suggest is perhaps easier fundraising, um, is really not so much easier. It's just they finally, they have, they just have years, if not decades of sort of figuring this out ahead of some of us and in, you know, sort of. It's it's layers of tradition in some ways. It's 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 recognizing it's taking the awareness that, for example, the people who are writing these checks to you or or have either been bigs or they've been littles, and building that into a tradition, just like Stanford Stanford University Mm -hmm. would do, recognizing that it's core their identity. But Stanford and Harvard and Ivy League institutions and big healthcare centers have been around for for centuries Mm -hmm. in some cases. That's true. And I don't know that we've sort of allowed that rooted that uh the, the theory of place the understanding that these sort of this that people belong to these places their identities are sort of rooted in that mm-hmm. um does your organization let people do you allow the donor to belong the donor you're sitting at the lunch table with we'll end on this thought do you allow the donor to belong to be like for, it to, for them to belong just like they would as an alum at the university they graduated mm-hmm. from. I think we've started to do some of that and then like the structure of our fundraising at this point. So we even we're building out different, you know, giving societies that you feel you're a part of and they're very specific. So one is directed towards you're helping make matches possible. Um, And it's a light one match society. It's a mid-level donor. And then, you know, building out, you know, the major level, the lead gift, the plan giving society, all these different groups where they feel like they're intimately a part of this small group and they're going to get specific communication from us and invited to specific events and opportunities to get to know our staff and our board um, and, and helping create that. I don't think 
it's been a part of the culture before. I think we're definitely building a culture of philanthropy, which I know is like a cliche term, but it really is what we're, we're moving toward at this point. We, um, I worked with a client once and I won't be too specific because he, he, he appreciates the podcast. Um, but I, I was working with a particular client and, and, and one of their particular donors. And what I came to realize is, is that one of their major donors or prospective major donors was actually giving to an institution, the institution of higher learning that this donor didn't actually graduate <laughs> from. Um, but the institution knew that this individual wanted their identity. They implicitly knew, you know, it's like me. I didn't go to Penn State, but I live here in Pennsylvania and maybe I'm a great big football field fan and I like going to the football mm-hmm. games or something. And so I want my identity to be in some way rooted in Penn State. And so that's why I contribute to that school, for example. Um, and so therefore, by giving to that institution, I feel like mm-hmm. I belong. And... um Alexander, Bruce Alexander, a professor in uh, in Vancouver, uh, Canada, um, talks about what, what's called psychosocial integration. And what psychosocial integration, it's the fact that our donors want to be integrated into mm-hmm. these institutions in much the same way that you or I want to belong when we show up for work. I think sometimes our donors are looking for the same damn thing that we as fundraisers mm-hmm. are looking for. We feel like we're sort of in this subculture world. You know, we're not part of the institution either. I think our donors and our fundraisers are all looking. And don't for the you same think we thing. overcomplicate it? So overcomplicate just, what? You know, when it comes to a donor, I think sometimes we completely overthink and overwork ourselves to creating this like amazing proposal with all of these different outcomes we want to deliver upon. When ultimately, you know, yes, they just want to have lunch with the <laughs> match relationship specialist or I, or you. Yes, and, and you know. And and you know what the, you know the other thing is I don't think they want to be on your damn advisory no, committee don't or your board either and I don't think they and I don't think they want to hijack your no. mission statement and and I think I think if we got over some of this fear that goes back to that notion of control if we got over some of the fear that our donors were control <laughs> freaks and we realized that they just want to belong. And if we created more meaningful ways to belong, which is to say that Caitlin may have to have dinner with this donor three times a year right. rather than once, is really all it takes yes. in some cases. Yes. I mean, the fact that I can relate to a donor about baseball <laughs> or, you know, I mean, like, that is, it, it's it's all human relationships. That's what it comes down to. I do have to ask you one question, if that's okay. Sure. Wrap it up on your question. We've got, we've had you for 45 minutes. You've tolerated my complete interrogation of your practices. So how about you interrogate me for a moment? <laughs> Do you think, I know this has come up a lot in conversation, uh, Mackenzie Scott is is helping to change the culture of philanthropy. Do you think that that's sure. impacting it? Yeah. Do I think I, I have some opinions about what McKinsey's doing, but um, I could probably invite you back and we could totally unravel what I think is going on there. What, uh, unpack the question a little bit and I'll, I'll give you my I, nobody has. We haven't talked about McKinsey's phenomenon that she's creating yet. So unpack that some more. Well, I know that all of her gifts are unrestricted. So I just don't know. And there's just some, you know, articles you read on LinkedIn and everything that has, you know, oh, we think she's going to change the way that donors think and the way that they give. Um, so I'm just curious if you think that that is true or if it is up to us to continue to move that change forward. 
Well, I've had that. Okay. Okay. Yes. I think that her, okay. And that's probably, um, that's part, that's enlightening because that's, that's some of perhaps what has precipitated this conversation because mm-hmm. you're watching Mackenzie's unrestricted gifts and we're all seeing that. And do I think that that's going to influence, um, there's, I think there's, uh, um, a couple of things. And I said this to another one of our fundraising, uh, one, another individual who's fortunate like myself to have a voice in a lot of these conversations. Um, I think Mackenzie has places where she belongs. Taking this back first to what I was saying a few minutes ago. I think she has places where that psychosocial integration, where she feels mm-hmm. integrated, those those places where uh, what third place theory talks about, for example, we, you know, it's almost like what Starbucks does for us and what the church historically did for us. We want to be in places where we belong outside of work and at home. And my guess is, is that McKinsey has those places first and foremost, and she doesn't expect all those, all those places that she gives to, to create that first. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? So that, that's sort of the first way I would respond to that. The second thing I would say is, is that I think, that the, the what you're alluding to that that her influence will absolutely have the impact that you're suggesting it will have that more of the um more of the uh more of the institutional giving like in the foundation like like what similar to what like Darren Walker cuz Darren Walker at the Ford Foundation is talking about some of the very mm-hmm. similar things uh basically unleashing sort of removing some of the restrictions on some of this, this giving that comes from these large private foundations where I don't think we're going to, where it's going to click, which I think is, is, is what I think there's a disconnect between some of the assumptions that someone like yourself or myself might draw is, is there's a big difference between McKinsey Scott and her economic reality in the world and the 25 donor $25 donor that you're sitting across the lunch table with in Indianapolis at a steak and shake <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? That's a completely different. She has so much more margin than even the most affluent donor that you might, for example, be routinely sitting across the lunch table with that all that margin is, a, is what a, in some ways permits her to be, um, I think we need to be a little more aware that there's a certain margin there that allows her to take those restrictions off of her expectations. No, that if does. that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to demean. I, I, I think she knows what she's doing and I know, and I know some of the voices that are in her head and I think they're doing very admirable work, but I also know that she's, she, she's formerly married to one of the richest guys on the damn planet <laughs> And um, and people just like her giving away are, are trying to do similar things, but how it, how it's going to trickle down to the donor that you're sitting across the lunch table with, sharing a BLT or something is 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 completely different. I think. No, I think I totally agree with that. I think the work is on us to move that forward, move that change. Yeah, and 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 that's. <laughs> And that's why we do what we do here. That's why it was so exciting to hear from you when you first reached out a month or so ago, Caitlin. I think fundraisers need to recognize that. I think fundraisers need to be less dependent on the notion that that uh, Mackenzie Scott, for example, is going to change the way this works. And people like yourself on the ground, boots on the ground in Indianapolis mm-hmm. are the ones that are really going to change the direction of what's happening here. Um I don't think some of these macro, I don't believe in the macro nearly as much as I believe as the boots on the ground. 
And that's what, and that's what you're doing, not what Mm -hmm. she's doing. Um, not to shame what she's doing. Um, but, but, but more importantly to elevate what you're doing. And I think having these conversations like we had today, um, and you having them with your colleagues and probably less having the, I, I think a lot of what we talked about today, Caitlin, and tell me if I'm wrong, has more to, less about you talking to your boss and has more to do with perhaps getting along with the, uh, with the accounting department. <laughs> I mean, am Maybe. I, am I, right? I don't know. I don't know. I think <laughs> we, we, I remember when I was at the epilepsy foundation, we got along with the, uh, we actually got along with our CFO, the senior most person, uh, you know, senior most financial person that was, was always counting on us to bring money in so that they could spend money and pay, get people paid. But it was actually the, uh, comptroller that worked for the CFO, the person who's sort of paying attention to every nickel and dime that was, pay, that was paid that tend to be our problem. You know, she didn't like the fact that Dan- Danielle and I flew up to Boston and paid for $400 hotel rooms to stay in Boston. But sometimes you got to pay for those expensive hotel rooms to ask a donor who, you know, that's part of asking for a, you know, $25,000 mm-hmm. check sometimes. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think, but I think the bigger thing, I mean, if I'm just speaking about our, our organization, I think it's just the confidence, you know, you know, amongst those who are asking for the gifts. Yeah. 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 And that, that, that goes back to what we were talking about, about you figuring, figuring out who the hell Caitlin is when you were talking about being a, an attorney, an attorney or mm-hmm. a social worker and a fundraiser. That That's quite fun, fascinating for me to sort of continue to ponder. Caitlin, I have really un- enjoyed this opportunity to, uh, that you've permitted me to sort of just unpack your experiences. I've enjoyed learning a little bit more about our friends at the Big Brother, at Big Brothers and Big Sisters. Somebody else might have enjoyed our conversation and want to reach out to you. How would you suggest sure. that they do that? Um, I'm always checking my email. It's my best friend, Bain at bbbsci.org, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm always on there too. All right, Caitlin, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're Thank always you. welcome back. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.